Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I'm your host with you here every two weeks. I'm so excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Ashley Gripper, who recently received her PhD from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and whose new position is Assistant Professor at Drexel University's Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity. She is also the founding organizer of Land-Based Johns. Ashley is also a Senior Agents of Change Fellow. And before you listen to this podcast, I highly recommend you read her timeless essay, We Don't Farm Because It's Trendy, We Farm as Resistance for Healing and Sovereignty. The essay was by far our most read, our most shared, our most talked about from this program. And in this podcast, she touches on many of the issues she talked about in the essay, about growing food as a tool to fight systemic oppression, and how gardening and farming hold spiritual and mental health benefits, and increases community healing and personal agency. Enjoy! So I am super excited to be joined by Ashley Gripper. Ashley, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. So, you know, in this season of life, I'm leaning into rest. And part of my rest this week has been binge watching Stranger Things. So um, <laughs> I'm coming right off of an episode. Or actually, I didn't even finish an episode. I was like, I, I got to pause it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. And I'm, I'm trying to... Um, replenish after being in grad school for the past seven years. Excellent. And we are going to get all into that. But first, where are you today? Where are you coming at us from? I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's my hometown, um, West Philly to be specific. Um, and yeah, this is where I was born and raised, where my family is. And that's where I'm uh, calling in from. So you are part of our first cohort and your essay, We Don't Farm Because It's Trendy, We Farm as Resistance for Healing and Sovereignty, has been by far our most read, our most shared, and our most discussed essay. It's not even close, to be honest. So I was wondering if you could just describe the response you got to the essay, what were some of the highlights, and how, if at all, did it impact your, your work, your career, your perspective as you move forward after that? Yeah, that essay, um, the whole process, you know, I had no idea what was going to how that article was going to be received or, you know, what the aftermath would be. Um, and the response was overwhelming. So as you know, I started writing that article early, um, early 2020. And then we were all set to um, try and release it, I think, sometime in March or April. It got pushed back a little bit. But then my dad passed away. So, you know, that further delayed it. And then when I was finally ready to come back to it and add the final touches, it it ended up getting released just before George Floyd was murdered. So I think what was happening in the country and the world at the time, you know, the pandemic also, all of those things that were happening at the same time really kind of, I think, amplified the response because um, the article... You know, we talked a lot about self-determination, about 
resistance um, to various forms of oppression. We, I talked about um, healing, the healing that agriculture offers, not only um, physically, but also mentally and spiritually. And it seemed to resonate with way more people than I anticipated. Um, I, you know, I must have received dozens and dozens of emails of people, you know, just uh, really just saying like, this is great work. Thank you for doing it. And then also the, the response on social media was <laughs> unimaginable. Um, I had folks who are, who I'm close with come up to me and be, who are in also like the black agriculture, black food space be like, I saw your article pop up on this page and this page and this page. And, um, it, it really, it, it was, um, like I said, like it was, I, it was unexpected for me. I couldn't have anticipated that that would have been the response. But I think part of that, that was the response because I poured so much of my heart and my spirit into it and drew on my experience, you know, my dad's experience, um, the, the Philadelphia experience, the black farming experience. I poured all of that into the article and it really, when I look back, I feel like that was a catalyst in so many ways for where I am now and being able to like, um, have done like, uh, I think since that article released, I must've done 30 to 40 invited talks. Um, I've done, you know, NPR podcasts. I've done, um, I don't know. I've just done a lot. <laughs> and a lot of people, I, I think a lot of that is because, uh, the response to the article and, and, and folks really uh, resonating with what I had to say. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And we, we do hold it up as kind of a model example of if you're going to talk about your research and weave in your personal experience and you threw in a whole bunch of history and historical perspective, it was just, it was beautiful. And we, we really debated. I, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, we debated on timing mm -hmm. and, and as you said, I think it was, ironically given all the pain that was going on it was kind of the perfect storm the perfect timing to have have it be released yeah yeah and i think a lot of what happened was people kind of felt themselves represented in a piece and also it gave hope that like hey there is this there's a way to like work through this there's a way to hold each other there's a way for us to care for ourselves and our community in the midst of you know so much tragedy and here's here it here it is represented in this scientific you know um blog or journal what do you call it? what is ehn i always get confused we're, we're, a, we're, a, we're a journalism it's yeah journalism. yeah you know <laughs> and i think that was that what one of the, some of the responses that i saw that i really appreciated were like just like yeah, that's what it is for us. You know, it's not about being trendy. It's about what the power that comes from growing food. Um, and I just think people people saw themselves um, in this mainstream news news media, and they they felt a little bit of hope, maybe. For sure. And the community you mentioned. So you are proudly from Philadelphia. I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could tell me about when and how you became interested in this intersection of growing food there as a tool to fight systemic oppression. And mm -hmm. what does that look like on the ground? Yeah, um, so the interest really started when I first finished undergrad. Um, I ended up working at this small nonprofit called the Urban Nutrition Initiative in Philadelphia. And that was really my introduction to food justice work. Um, 
and you know I'm learning more I'm absorbing everything that I um, all of the materials that the organization has put together but then the opportunity presented itself uh, to attend the Black Farmers Conference so I uh, attended that conference I believe in 2013 and the, that year the keynote speaker um, I think I talk about this in my article the keynote speaker was Dr. Monica White who is the author of Freedom Farmers and also a professor of environmental justice at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that was, a, as she spoke and, and kind of brought in the history of black farming, um, particularly in the South, she weaved all of these concepts together for me. And it was really the first time that I saw growing food as power, growing food as freedom, growing food as community. Um, and, and that's kind of where, where I think the, the, the seeds have been planted years ago. I didn't know. Um, but I think that's where the seeds like were really watered and, you know, the sun started to come out. Um, and from then on, I kind of really, really dove into the work. Um, and then even decided that, oh, I could go back to school for this and like use my, um, quantitative skills and research skills in a way that supports uh, food justice movement work. Did I Sorry answer all of your question? Well, I was wondering what it looks like. What does that look like on the ground? Oh, right, when you right. talk about using using farming, using growing food as a tool to fight systemic oppression, which I, I, I've seen you mention that before. So when you're out there, uh, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so my, my journey has been... Um, it's, it's been a diverse journey. So I started in the nonprofit kind of grassroots-ish space, transitioned into the academy. Um, and while I was in grad school, throughout my time, I was always connecting with um, uh, grassroots organizations, farming organizations. I was volunteering, trying to figure out how I can support this food council or how I can support, you know, the agriculture plan for the city. So that's what it looked like Um uh while in the academy um but in 2020 there was also so you know there was a lot that was happening um in the world but for me in internally so um that is the year that i actually uh began to like honestly kind of move full time into grassroots work and organizing and community building um, and for me right now, what that looks like and what that's grown into is um, running this organization called Land Based Drawings. Um, that is a Philly based organization that offers education and training um, to black women and black um, non-binary and trans folks around um, gardening, uh, safety and self-defense. We do workshops on uh, building and carpentry. So, you know, how to work with power tools and also land based living. So the whole focus of that work is around self and community healing, um, but also developing these real tactile skills that not only help us survive, but help us to thrive living in connection with the land. So for me, that's what the work looks like on the ground. Um, there's also, I also do a good bit of policy and advocacy work um, with the city. Um, we are just about to release the first urban agriculture plan for Philadelphia. There's a team of about six or seven of us that have been working on that for about three years now. Um, and that, you know, that on the groundwork looks like making recommendations for how land gets distributed to uh, growers and how, you know, those growers are supported once they have land and, and different things the city can implement in order to sustain um, um, 
the agricultural movement in the city. So that's just a little bit of what the on the ground work looks like for me. You explain what what John's land based John's. What does that name mean for us non Philly folk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's kind of. I mean, it's hard and easy to explain at the same time. John's John is a word that has been around in Philly for as long as I can remember. Um, and it pretty much means everything and anything. So, you know, like, let's say you're sitting on the couch with your, your family and the remote is across the room. You could be like, yo, throw me that John, you know? So, but also there have been, you know, when I was in high school and growing up, there have been so many like different uses of Johns. I remember it was like the trend to refer to people as Johns, um, you know, or you'd be like, I'm a John. And it's kind of, that's the part that's a little bit hard to explain. Um, but, uh, you know, putting it together, um, I kind of first heard, you know, we were when I was at uh, uh, the annual retreat with National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Um, I remember folks saying like, oh, we land-based people, land-based, land-based this, land-based that. And then, uh, you know, that's kind of when I was like, oh, what about land-based Johns? Like, you know, to represent the Philly folks. So that's kind of how the name came to be. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for that. So since you have just finished up your PhD, I was wondering, so you obviously have been doing this community-centered research approach for a while. And I was wondering if it created any challenges along the way, since this has not always been the case in Ooh. traditional academia to to foster this kind of approach. Absolutely. Ooh. The challenges were were numerous. Um, and most of my, my biggest challenges were on the institutional side, not on the community side. Um, I, I think since I already have such deep rootedness in my community and trust there that um, there there wasn't a whole lot of uh there weren't a whole lot of challenges on that side but <sighs> along the way there were there were people who just didn't understand the vision didn't understand the approach or didn't necessarily agree with the approach or think the approach was necessary um to do the research particularly in public health i think um there's this hyper focus on like quantitative methods um and you know it's like study design controlling for like we need to control for all of the things so that we can isolate this particular exposure and that way of thinking is really um like uh antithetical to the work that i do and the the in the community and also academically i think that i think that there's an issue there's a how do i say this so I know that that approach, you need to do research in that way for certain things. Like, let's say we're talking about um, diseases, infectious diseases, things like that. But for the for understanding health and understanding whole, health holistically, I think that we need to be careful with how we try to parse out exposures. So what I really was trying to do was push, um, you know, my school, my department to be able to look at what's happening holistically. Okay, so urban agriculture is not just farming. It's not just the, the physical act of farming. It's also the, 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 the building of community. It's also um, skills building and, and job training. It's um, having your hands literally in the soil and the potential um, microbes that you're being exposed to. It, it, there's so many things that 
um, uh, related to agriculture that can impact health. And I, my goal was not to like figure out what, you know, what is the most impactful thing or what's one thing, how does one specific thing impact, you know, your outcome for this thing. So there was a lot of, I had, what I had to do is like bring my school, bring my department along to understand what it is I was trying to do and why I was not focusing necessarily on physical health, but instead mental health, spirituality, and agency. You know, in a public health program, there are some, sometimes they're like, well, agency, what does that have to do with health? And then for me, I'm like, what doesn't agency have to do with health? So can you expand about that a little bit? So both mm-hmm. in your research and, and on the ground, it, it ties in more than just a nutritional aspect. So it's yeah. the spiritual, it's mental health, it's, as you mentioned, community healing, personal agency. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how these are connected to food growing? You mentioned this a little bit, uh, and perhaps some examples of how you, you've seen this in the communities you worked in, or maybe for yourself. Yeah, so... Um... So what I did, I'll, I'll just I'll talk to you a little bit through my dissertation because I think that this speaks to how I did how I looked at these things. So, in my first paper, I did a spatial analysis looking at where community gardens and urban farms in Philadelphia are located in relationship to neighborhood demographics. So that paper um, or that article also involved a lot of historical analysis and historical review of what's happening the country with black farmers, what's happened in the city with urban growers and black growers, and what's happened in the city with gentrification. Um, so what I was, what I saw and what I found is that neighborhoods um, that, black neighborhoods tend to have higher concentrations of community gardens. Poor neighborhoods in the city tend to have concentrations of community gardens. And when you look at neighborhoods that are both black and have higher concentrations of low food access, they have more tend to have more community gardens as well. And this analysis was not causal and non-temporal, but what it, it, it seems to align with what community members have said, and that is that um, you know, as neighborhoods are extracted from, as the resources are pulled out, um, community members come together to provide food for themselves, to care for themselves and to heal themselves. And um, I, I think that what that first paper showed, was that, hmm, you know, even though this is non-causal, this does seem to affirm what folks have already said. So in that in that paper, I was trying to start to build a case for collective agency and like how this is such an impactful, uh, a big, um, I guess, product of urban agriculture, black urban agriculture too. And then in the second paper, I was like, I need to ask people. I need to go directly to the people who are growing food and understand what they think the impacts are instead of trying to say these are the impacts based on like the literature that I've read. So that involved a series of focus groups with black and white urban farmers in the city asking about the impacts, like what they thought the impacts were on their health holistically, um, so spiritually, mentally, physically, and also what they thought the impacts were on community. And there were four major themes that emerged across those six focus groups, and that was that um, agriculture, urban agriculture, uh, helps facilitate body and mind wellness. Um, urban agriculture um, helps to deepen spirituality and spiritual relationships to the land. Uh, urban agriculture is a demonstration of agency and power. And the last and um, I, I'm, biggest theme that appeared across the focus groups was um, urban agriculture is a demonstration of care and relationship building. 
Um, so, you know, though, as those themes started to emerge, I was like, oh, this all makes sense to me as somebody who, who is a grower in the city. Um, then I started to transition that into a, a, a final paper which and, or a research project. And my goal with that project was to develop a scale that measures all of these things for urban ag communities. So um, through that work in drawing on the themes from the focus group, drawing on Monica White's um, theoretical framework and drawing from my own experience in interpersonal conversations, um, I was able to develop a scale that measures something called agricultural community power. Um, so that's kind of like how an agricultural community power, let me just say, it encompasses land-based spirituality, it encompasses um, health and well-being, it encompasses um, um, community care and relationship building, as well as, well as a concept uh, called Ubuntu. Uh, which means I am because we are, and it's about the interdependence of humanity. So that scale and, and the focus group and the first paper, honestly, is how I attempted to to really understand the impacts of urban ag on spirituality, mental health, and collective agency. I'm just curious, when you talk to people that, um, that spoke to you for this, mm -hmm. was this something that they had consciously thought about? Or was just, or did you kind of spur this thinking, like, oh yeah, this 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 activity does make me feel good. It does connect me to my neighbors. Or was that something you think was already kind of top of mind? I think it was a mix. So there were some people who who came in, like, you know, and had really beautiful answers about how agriculture, like growing food, was the first time that they, like, for instance, I talk about this in the paper. There was one person who said. Um, that they never felt more, um, I guess, more resilient, more confident, more grounded um, in terms of their mental health than they did when they, until they were growing food. And they compared, um, they were like, oh, you know, I've been on medications, I've been in therapy, but growing food by far has been the most impactful thing for my mental health. And that person had a very like clear answer so you could tell like this person had been thinking about these things and then there were some people who were like you know I never participated or I've never like younger folks for instance there was one person who I think maybe was like 20 and was like yeah I just love it and I don't always think about it in these ways but as I'm hearing these like other people in the focus group share it's making me realize that it does these things for me as well. And I think that's part of the beauty of the focus group is that you, you know, sometimes we don't always have the words to articulate what it is we're feeling, thinking, um, or experiencing. And then in the focus group setting, sometimes people can like offer uh, an articulation of a concept that we are familiar with. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, it was, it was definitely a mix. There were some people, there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, we think about these things all the time. You know, I think about, there were like analogies of, um, um, like when I see dragonflies, that reminds me of my mother or when dragonflies come to me, that is my mother literally coming to me and speaking to me. So there were like, there was definitely a range of like how in depth people had uh, engaged with these questions and ideas before the focus groups. So to, to blow this up a little bit in your essay, you mentioned how discriminatory and predatory practices led to black farmers and families losing, I believe it was over 12 million, million acres in the US since 1920 mm -hmm. over the last century. So can you kind of briefly outline the ways, I know this is a big question, but the ways in which this could and should be reversed or mm. remedied, and if you're seeing any movement on that front. 
<sighs> yeah, that is a big question, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, reverse. I mean, oh, this whole this is such a this is such a complex question. I think. Um, so and the first thing that comes to mind is supporting um, black farmers and black folks who currently have land to maintain and retain that land. So, you know, I'm going through a situation in my family where I recently discovered that we have a lot of acreage of land and it's, it's you know, once it falls into heirs property, it gets so much more complicated on how to keep the land, what to do with it. So, you know, programs and support um, available to folks who are trying to hold on to their land and keep it. Um, I know some of those programs exist, not enough of them do. Um, one program or legislation, I guess, that was uh, brought up to, to, to help with that is uh, the Justice for Black Farmers Act. And the Justice for Black Farmers Act, as far as I know, was about helping um, black farmers keep land helping new farmers get land and um, there's like a third bucket that I'm forgetting. So, you know, I, I'm not sure where that is, but I know that um, I think there was some judge somewhere who maybe shot shot it down or there. I don't know where that is, but I know there it's been some controversy around the Justice for Black Farmers Act for sure. On the more local level, which I think is, you know, sometimes the the easier way to affect change. Um, what we've been doing in Philadelphia is really the agriculture. Sorry, let me slow down. We've been um, working on the urban agriculture plan, and there's a lot of language in there about helping people to get land. Um, and we've also been doing organizing around um, share of sale and U.S. bank liens. So there are a lot of active community gardens in the city that are run by black and brown folks um, that are on lots that were neglected and um, overgrown and used as dump sites. Um, and these farmers and growers transform those lots. But what ended up happening is that since those properties and, and many times were tax delinquent, they got sold uh, and, and were a part of the U.S. Uh, now they have U.S. bank liens on them. And the U.S. bank lien or the U.S. I'm not sure of the who who is doing what, but I know a lot of those lots are being threatened right now. So um, there is concern that the people who have maintained those lots for 5, 10, 15, 20 years may lose them um, because they don't have the deeds um, or the property rights. So we're doing a lot of organizing around that. We're working with several city council folks. Um, and when I say we're, um, I'm part of a food policy advisory council in the city and also soil generation. And soil generation is a coalition of um, black and brown growers uh, doing uh, advocacy and policy work um, among other things around farming and agriculture. So um, that's kind of a little bit of what's happening on the local level and, you know, in terms of like how to reverse, you know, land loss and land theft, truthfully, that's a big question. And it's one that I don't think, you know, I don't think anybody has a complete answer to. 
Um, but, you know, there's also talk of reparations and how reparations uh, can support folks to get land or hold on to land. And I think what it requires is is more like uh, collective organizing and, and community organizing around these issues and also uh, political education around these issues. There are a lot of people who just don't even know, you know, um, or don't understand the importance and the power um, and the self-determination that comes from being able to have land and, and grow food on, on your own land. So in keeping with this theme of big questions, <laughs> I neglected to ask you something I've been asking everybody on the podcast to this point, which is what is a moment or event that shaped your identity? Ooh. It could be personal, professional. Yeah, shaped my identity. The first one that comes to mine is kind of um, it's like two events, but both related is, um, you know, I think about the passing of my mom when I was in college, um, my senior year of college. Uh, that definitely shaped a lot of who I am and um, the ways that I think about grief and relationships. And the second is the passing of my dad, um, which happened, you know, two years ago. Um, and I, you know, this now I feel like I'm almost a completely different person because of what I've had to learn, what I had to experience and um, the ways that I had, the ways that I was grown, that I was stretched and, um, you know, had to, I think, to work through both of those deaths because my my dad's death brought up a lot of grief that I didn't deal with from my mom's death. I had to go inward and I had to um, go through a lot of therapy and go to the land, honestly. the A big part of how I ended up as an actual grower was because after my dad passed, a good friend of mine was like, you need to come be on the farm with us. Um, and there were so many lessons that I learned from the land um, and the bees and the, uh, you know, the earthworms and all of the life that is within the farm that has transformed who I am and changed the way um, I think about, you know, my relationship with other people to change the way I think about interdependence in Ubuntu and also change the way I think about our connection and responsibility to the earth. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. So you have grown in more ways than just that. You are, uh, congratulations on your new position at Drexel. Thank you. And Thank what you. does it mean to you to continue your work in your hometown of Philadelphia? And what do you hope to do there yeah. at the Ubuntu Center? Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, I was recently appointed as a tenure track assistant professor um, at Drexel School of Public Health, specifically with the Ubuntu, the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity. Um, and my appointment is uh, primary in the Community Health and Prevention Department and secondary appointment in Environments on Occupational Health. Um, I'm excited to span two departments and centers because um, I think my work is so interdisciplinary that it touches on so many different things. And I talked to you earlier about how I don't like the silos. I don't like how we're like, we got to isolate this exposure. And, you know, my work really is like drawing on sociology, it's drawing on epidemiology, environmental health, it's all of these things. 
Um, and I think that honestly, Drexel feels like the perfect place to continue to do the work the way that I want to do it, the way that I think is most impactful for communities. And the fact that it's in Philadelphia, you know, that's just the icing on the cake. And the truth be told, I didn't look, I wasn't applying to positions outside of Philadelphia. Like this is where I wanted to be. Um, and the, you know, the center itself, the Ubuntu Center, the very focus is on the interdependence of people. It's on Ubuntu. It's on, you know, how is your humanity wrapped up in my humanity? And by extension, your well-being wrapped up in my well-being. So I really appreciate the community center and collective approach that the Ubuntu Center has. And I think it's the perfect place to allow me to, um, to, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm in this stage of like brainstorming and visioning, but I have this vision of, you know, trying to do academic community partnerships differently. Um, they, you know, institutions in Philadelphia specifically, but other places have been really harmful to communities. And I am like, okay, how can we leverage the resources that the university has to do what the community wants and the community needs. And not only that, not what we think the community needs, but what community members say they need. So I'm like visioning this summer on like what that looks like. I'm, I'm talking to my friends and comrades about how the work I do at the university can be impactful and aligned with what they're doing on the ground. And then also holding the truth that I'm both in the university and on the ground, right? So. Um, yeah, just like doing a lot of brainstorming about that. And I think that, uh, I think that where I'm going to be is, is strategically the best place to do that kind of work in the way that I want to do it. Excellent. Yeah. You've spoken so beautifully today about the power of growing food and digging in the dirt. What would you, what would you tell somebody in a city or otherwise, but maybe especially in a city, uh, who has never grown a thing? who's interested in this and just maybe wants to get started in some way, um, what would what would you tell them? That's a great question. And I don't even know if you know that I did this thing, but I would tell them to go to Coursera and type in Black Agricultural Solutions to Food Apartheid. I did this extensive teach out um, for as an introductory level for people who want to learn more about growing food, particularly in the city. Um, I talk about the history. I talk about some of the research. But then at the end, it's really hands-on. Like, here's how you actually grow a thing. And here's how you don't just grow a thing for the sake of growing a thing, but actually build a relationship with the plants and the soil. Um, so I would definitely recommend, if you're interested in, like, just getting started, check that out. Because I also talk about how to do it in a city and how to reclaim a vacant lot and, you know, use that for the purposes of... Um, supporting your community so yeah that is called again it's on coursera that's c-o-u-r-s-e-r-a i think dot com or dot org um and the teach out itself is called black agricultural solutions to food apartheid perfect i did not know that so you had a you had a ready-made answer the materials are all there so ashley this has been so much fun and now i have some I have some lighthearted questions. So before my last question, I have three rapid fire questions where you can Ooh. just answer with one word or a quick phrase, just okay. quick in and out. So the first one is an album or artist I've been listening to lately is. Uh, I'll give you one song. Um, Jamila Woods, Holy. 
the best vegetable to eat right after picking it is Mmm. Sun cold cherry tomatoes. Cats or dogs? Mmm. Actively create trying to build a home that is will support a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my partner and I are planning to get a dog in a couple months. So we're like trying to figure that out. <laughs> yes, it's a commitment. We have a new um from the shelter who's being very very sweet today but uh, they can be a challenge mm -hmm. they can definitely be a challenge so ashley what is the last book that you read for fun for fun come on now you know i just finished a phd <laughs> um for fun uh i'm still working my way through children of virtue and vengeance it's the second book in the children of blood and bone series um, that's my kind of like fiction book. And the last book I opened um, that I opened for like free time fun is called Of Water in Spirit, I believe. And it's by Maladoma Some, um, who is, uh, I think he, I might get this wrong. I think he might be from the Congo. Um, but the book is about like spiritual practices connecting to land and, and, and how that is a uh, uh, has African origins, despite um, how how that is inherently African, um, despite kind of like you know more Western religious trying to encourage people to uh, separate from those traditional practices. Awesome, and so Ashley, this has been so much fun. You were the I was, you were the last fellow I had to track you down, and you were frankly. <laughs> one of the ones I was most excited to speak to. So thank you so much for doing this today. Absolutely, Brian. This was awesome. Thank you. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashley. I know I did. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org and while you're there, click the donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizota, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. You can email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join us next time when senior fellow Michelle Jin takes over the podcast for a discussion about the dangers and solutions in tackling toxic skin lightening products. Have a great week, folks.